You're listening to Black Humboldt's new podcast, Black Aesthetic. And we're celebrating our love for Black arts and culture within Humboldt County. What up? This Queen D rocking this body from East Coast to Humboldt. Woo! Hey, this is Dwar, healing souls on the streets. KM Ross, popping shots, killing things, and making stuff. Hey, hey, it's your girl Mo, mom artist extraordinaire. Baby, baby. This is Juneteenth, 2020, Knowledge Repower Session 2, Being Black at the Intersection of Birth and Death, with Monday Frequency Katiwa. So Monday Frequency Katiwa is a Kenyan immigrant queer woman storyteller, the 2018 Woman of the World Poetry Slam champion, a 2017 TED woman speaker, and ranked third at the 2015 Individual World Poetry Slam. Frequency is a high sought after performer, host, social justice teaching artist, and workshop leader. Rooted in various global communities and having spent their life at the intersection of arts, education, and activism, they and their work in reproductive justice, Black Lives Matter, organizing and activism, LGBTQ plus advocacy and writing have been featured on The Independent, The New York Times, OK Africa, Upworthy, Ted, X, for Harriet, Teen Vogue, Huffington Post, Everyday Feminism, and other outlets. Frequency is a founding co-chair of the New Orleans chapter of the Black Youth Project 100, a founding committee member of the New Orleans Youth Open Mic, festival coordinator for the New Orleans Youth Poetry Festival, a blogger with the Afro Fashion and Culture blog, Neora uh, New Orleans, and a member of Wild Seeds, the New Orleans Octavia Butler Emergent Strategic Collective. You can check out all of their work at www.frequencyspeaks.com, which is F-R-E-E-Q-U-E-N-C-Y-S-P-E-A-K-S.com. They have um, released a book of poetry called Becoming Black. It's $15. It's available on their website. Um, it is a collective of poems that follows one day Frequency Katwiwa's exploration of Blackness, Black identity, after immigrating from Kenya um, to their home in the United States. The collection opens with the author's arrival in the United States and features poems exploring their journey into themselves and their Black identity as an immigrant to the Western world. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. So I thought it was very uh, important to play those two powerful pieces because I think they really um, you know, set us up for, for the conversation that we're going to have here and um, just thinking about moments kind of in a black life. Mm-hmm. You know, like I definitely, not necessarily the first one, first poem, but the second piece I definitely related to. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's funny because you premised it with, um, what, what did you say, the first time you... The first time I remember feeling black. And when you, when you, before you even started the poem, I, I went to one of those moments where, where I got called a nigger <laughs> with my family at a mall, someone driving by in a car, just, I'm like nine years old, maybe less, you know? There's something about that word that's just, and I think especially when you're, when you're young and you're not desensitized to it yet, mm-hmm. that just, it's striking to you. And even if you don't know a lot about it, you know that there's something about it that's not 
good and there's something about it that's being directed at you specifically or you and people who look like you or you and people that you love and it's like it's a triggering moment mm -hmm. so in that poem what I was really trying like I really didn't you know I'd heard the word mm -hmm. I knew what it, what it meant but it didn't make sense to me what was being called in that moment mm -hmm. but I felt it more than mm -hmm. anything you know the understanding came a lot later um, and how a lot old of these, were you? I was in sixth grade um, so how old was I? That's around 12-ish. Yeah, I was around 11. I think I was a little young for my grade, so I was probably 11 years old. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's, it's, it's not like at that point I had just come to America. You know, right. I had been here probably for like five years at this point, mm -hmm. um, a little over five years. So I'd been here. Um, and the, the first poem in the book, you know, I don't remember exactly how old we were when that happened, but that was closer to the time when we first came to this country. And my dad had been in this country for a year before. Mm -hmm. um, so he had kind of lived here and gotten more used to it. And he was coming here, obviously, as an adult, as opposed to children who have a much different experience of coming into that. So mm -hmm. I think it hit him a lot harder than, you know, in a way that he just didn't expect. And so when we came over, he was like, all right, how do we not have that happen to kids? You know, <laughs> that happened to me. <laughs> um, wow, but there, yeah. there are things that you can't be protected from. You know, like the, the story, that second poem that happened in school, that was in the mm -hmm. middle of our lunch session. We were just hanging out. Literally, there was, no, there was no context. There was no fight. And people have this horrible habit of always asking, like, you know, what happened? What was the context around it that made that happen? Mm. And I'm always like, what? What do you mean? Does there have to be a context? And specifically, there's another poem in the book that is kind of mirrored in the same way that that one is um, written, mm -hmm. called When My White Coworker in College Called Me Nigger. Mm -hmm. And that happened here, actually, at Tulane University. Um, and that one, more than exploring the personal experience, which the first one does in you know, a very youthful way, this one talks more about what happened around it and really the questioning that happened, not mm -hmm. to him, but to me, when that experience happened, right? So mm -hmm. when I told different people about it, because um, it's like getting slapped, so it's like, well, what'd you do? You know, what I, and I'm like, <laughs> I got slapped. That's what happened. That's what happened. <laughs> there I was minding my own business. Right. Out comes this hand and right. smacks me. And the funny thing about both the instances um, that were written about in the book that where I was called nigger, there was no context actually. There wasn't mm. anything that could be pointed to that happened. Both of them just happened so unnaturally that it pulled me. That, I think that's why it hit me that much more because it wasn't even something that was I was expecting or not that it's ever something that you should expect, right? But if you're in a right. fight or if someone's getting angry, you're preparing yourself for something hitting you. But right, you I'm got six, a shield up, you know. <laughs> but in sixth grade, I'm eating lunch and then it happens. And then I'm co in mm. college, I'm working the desk, and then it happens. I'm just like the hell, like yeah. what world do we live in where things like this have to happen? And then beyond, you know, being called a nigger. What, what world do we live in where things constantly have to happen to us because of our identity in our blackness? And that really is what the book is about. It's a different, reflecting on the different experiences of my life. Um, Look at you with your perfect little segue. So yeah, so tell us though about, <laughs> um, tell us about the creation of the book. So it's called Becoming Black. Mm -hmm. um, just go. Well, I mean, I, I just been, I've probably been writing. I started writing when I was in um, end of middle school, start of high school. And mm -hmm. then I kind of took a, a brief hiatus when I was in college. Um, I didn't have the best experience when I was in college, so I kind of mm. did a runaway experience, and I went to, quote-unquote, study abroad in Kenya, which is actually where I'm from. And so I just chilled out for six months back home and really like, got comfortable in my blackness in a way that I, I never socially right because usually when i go back to kenya i go with my family so mm -hmm. i'm hanging out with my grandparents i'm hanging out with my parents i'm not really you know you know how it is when you hang out with your family right, right. but this time because i went through my study abroad experience i was there by myself um 
or with another group that wasn't my family. And so I was getting a whole different context and experience of the country. And the most beautiful part of it for me was the fact that I was just like blending in, you know, mm. even though there was some parts like I'm not from Nairobi, the city. So I was, you know, tourist in a lot of ways when I was out there, but I was experiencing in a way that people weren't looking at me like the other. And that was something that was just burdening me so much leaving America and leaving a predominantly white institution was this burden of blackness that just like, I never asked for it, never, you know, never mm. was able to seemingly cast off and people just never seemed to know when they were adding to it and they kept adding to it. But then when I was in Kenya, I was just like moving through life, you know, like as a human being. And, you know, bad things happen, good things mm. happen. It's still living life and life is what life is. But there wasn't consequences or experiencing that were experiences that were happening specifically because I was black. And if they were, they weren't othering experiences. They were very welcoming experiences. And so I, I went back, I came back to the States and I was just so rejuvenated. You know, I was just, I was happy. And then like a month and a half later, that kid called me a nigger and I was just like, damn, like I came back from Kenya with this like sense of like myself and knowing that I might not be, you know, I'm from Kenya, but I've spent so much time here in America. And so there was an element of otherness. And so I came back feeling like comfortable there, but also comfortable with my identity here. And then this kid just immediately othered me in that. And so that was really when I started doing a lot of reflection on blackness and what that meant, a lot of writing on blackness. Um, and that was also just happened to be the time that in this country, a lot of conversations around race and brutality and how blackness in the state and violence interact uh, started happening. And so a lot of poems became influenced by that. Some of the more known poems um, in the book were influenced by that. But then some of the, the new poems are influenced by just a personal reflection on blackness and what that meant. So it's a mix of um, older poems and newer poems. Mm -hmm. um, so what was so the newer poems, how did you go into writing those? Thinking about becoming black? Or, or was it, did you title the book Becoming Black before you finished these pieces or? No, I don't even know when the book started being called Becoming Black. Um, I think at some point when, because like when I was thinking about writing a book, you can either just write a, you know, a compilation of poems or you mm -hmm. put a bunch of pieces together. You can write a book that kind of tells a story through different yet related poems. Um, and I, at some point, I realized, I was like, I don't think I want to just put together a book, even though I have a, a bunch of poems I can just mm -hmm. put into a book. I don't think I want to do that. So what story do I want to tell? Um, and just on a very personal level, because the book itself doesn't just explore blackness from the lens of like black versus white. It also explores blackness within the black community here in America. Mm -hmm. um, and I was spending a lot of time doing some organizing work in the black community and around blackness. So I was doing a lot of time just thinking, living, experiencing and fighting for blackness. And so that was very urgent on my mind. And so I said, not, and I, you know, to a certain extent, you get tired of writing about the struggle that you're in. Uh -huh. um, and you start to think about how you got there, right? Mm -hmm. And there were very ex specific experiences in my life that when I sat down to think, I wasn't like, oh, what stories am I going to tell? They just started coming. And I was like, ooh, that was a very painful or relevant or funny experience that happened. Mm -hmm. And, then, you know, one of the poems in the book is about a, a joke my dad told me over, like, Christmas break or something. You know, that mm -hmm. just was like, it wasn't like the moment specifically was so overwhelming and then we talked really deeply afterwards we didn't it was just a joke that he told me and we laughed and went on and did whatever it was that we did but I, I found myself really thinking about that later on and wanting to explore like 
where, how do we get to a point with my dad, right? If the first if the first poem in the book is about him telling me about blackness, how did I get to this point in my life where we're now joking about it so casually in mm-hmm. such like a painful and understanding way? Mm-hmm. You know, so it's really asking myself like, how do I get from that beginning to this end story? Mm-hmm. What were the different experiences that made me understand that that would make people understand how these other poems that people know me for writing for came about? Mm-hmm. Um- and so when you when you, did you go and share your experiences of being called a nigger with your parents or with your father? Because um, I'm wondering how how they uh, responded to to you saying that to that experience. Well, so in the sixth grade, yeah, that was, you know, it became an issue. Um, and I don't. Well, that's right, because you got sent to the office. Because we got sent to the principal's <laughs> office. And I think I don't remember specifically what happened, but I remember that was one of the first times where I was like. Oh, shoot, like, I think I have, like, really dope parents because they were in there, like, really fighting for mm-hmm. what was going on. Um, and it was also sad because most parents didn't show up. And that, so it was re- that moment in particular was such a tender and bonding moment for me mm-hmm. and Mo specifically. And me and Mo ended up, you know, moving to the same town at the same time and then moving again to the same town at the same time. And, mm-hmm. you know, in one place we were the only black kid. And we, it, we just had such, like, a bonding and loving experience. And so that experience, as painful as it was and as painful as it was written in the book, mm-hmm. was such a moment for me and him as friends and such a moment for in in black love you know and that's something that if i would say there's something missing in the book it would be all the poems about black love and how much i've i've loved the experience of being black despite through all the pain um and all the all the horrible things that are inflicted on us Mm. the very experience itself without that infliction is a beautiful thing you know right because i i definitely wanted to get into and there you go with your lovely segue again um (laughs) this the idea of kind of the burden of blackness because i've been thinking about a lot lately what it means to have your identity tied to oppression and like living your whole life just you know thinking that way and being trapped to um to those moments of traumatic impacts that happened to your ancestors, to yourself. To... Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's I think, what, why this book was so important for me specifically to write as an African immigrant, because that is not an experience that I was born into, right? That was something I had to become. That was something I had to go into. And that's where the mm-hmm. title Becoming Black came from. It wasn't just about blackness. You know, I didn't grow up in this country, wasn't born here, wasn't something, you know, it was something that literally I had to learn through different experiences in my life through both white and black people in this country to really shape completely what that experience felt like, both positive and negative, you know. Um, And I think right now in this current moment that we're at, a lot of the things we hear about blackness are in the context of oppression. And I Mm -hmm. do wish that there's a lot of times that we talk about the beautiful things that come out of blackness and the people who not only are fighting, but the people who are celebrating, the people who are living through it, you know what I mean? Just loving and still existing in their blackness and loving their blackness. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, because I very much like was told, it, it was like told to me, a nigger, it, nigger is the worst thing anybody can ever call you. It mm-hmm. was like, just so you know that, here, mm-hmm. here's, here's part of the, you know, it's like, you know, this idea of becoming black too, it's, it's, um, because, yeah, it happens certainly differently in a way from for somebody coming from Kenya, but it also does happen to, you know, I, we have to be told that we're black in a way, right. kind of, too, or we're, or we're shown right. all, all of our lives. Exactly. In this, in this, and that's uh, why the, the poem ways. talks not just about my experience, with it, but also Mo's experience with it, because Mo's mm-hmm. a black American, right. you know, but it's not like he was called a nigger, we were called niggers, and mm-hmm. so it was like... You know, the poem ends with a line, something along the lines of, I just realized um, I was a soldier in a war I was just fighting in. Mm. And it's because it was like, whether or not I recognized it as my battle, it became my battle the moment I stepped into this country. Right. You know, whether, you know, the moment I realized it years later, 
will be something I remember, but to some extent, I had always known it because I'd always been feeling some way. And when that when I was called that word, I knew there was a reason I was called that word. Mm-hmm. You know, it hit mm-hmm. me in a way that I didn't have to understand it because I was it was already inside of me. You know, um, so and then the second time, actually, mm-hmm. I was in college and my parents they were in Kenya. They'd been um, on sabbatical. And so I didn't have that same savior experience that I had in middle school where they just came through and did it and actually didn't end up telling them until they came back to the States probably a year later. Mm-hmm. Um, Are they was, in Kenya now or did they move back? Or? No, they're here, they're here now. Okay. Um, they go back and forth for work. Okay. Um, but yeah, I didn't end up telling them. And I, I remember telling my dad the day I told my dad um, what had happened that semester. And I think it, something had changed in me when that happened because... Um, he 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 picked me up from the airport and was just like, yeah, like, are you all right? You've been a little just like, you know, mm-hmm. bummed out. And he had just come back from Kenya. And when I was in Kenya, like I was telling you, I was just like so happy and like all over the place. So he was like, what happened? And I told him. Um, and my dad, I can remember all the times in my dad's life that I've seen him cry exactly once. <laughs> um, but then it became twice that night. And he was just like, you know, the pain that he tried to keep me from having in that first poem, you know, teaching mm-hmm. me that lesson, trying to just tell me about it as opposed to living it. You could just see in that moment that it just like, it hadn't happened. You know, that's mm-hmm. not something you can just tell someone about. That's something that people, no matter what you do, are going to experience in this country. However they experience it is going to be different and unique to themselves, but it happened, you know. And for him, I think it was just a moment of like, there was, there was nothing I could do about it. You know, in sixth grade, I could go and sit in the principal's office and yell at somebody and protect her from that. But here she is in college, and that was something that she had to deal with and something that she did deal with all by herself and went through that and mm-hmm. coming out on the other side kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Well, we're certainly not going to spend all, all this time that we have talking together talking about blackness as a burden, necessarily. <laughs> even though there is, there is a lot of... Um, hurt and pain and anger that that come with it if you're paying attention mm. um but let's talk about the book specifically now it mm. is very beautifully bound and it has a nice you know thick cover it is paperback um tell me about the the actual like binding of this like, <laughs> tell me about the this, the book physically itself oh man i, love I grip this it book. in my hand i love this book <laughs> i just so there's this guy named jeff munsterman who um runs this publishing company called Next Left Press. And he's published a few local poets down here. He's he's from down here in Louisiana, mm-hmm. a little bit outside of Baton Rouge. And he's also a poet himself. And you know the typical way that um, books are bound, um, not manually, but I don't even know. I, guess, I assume they use some sort of machine. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> but it looks like a regular book. Um, but I, I didn't necessarily want my book to look like that. It, it, it was feeling like such a unique book for me to write and a unique experience that I wanted every part of it to specifically be unique. Um, I reached out to my friend Soul, who's a local MC here, um, and she was the one who designed that cover. And then I reached out to Jeff because I'd seen the way that he bound other people's book, and he had this beautiful way of just making them so individualized, right? Like no book that he bound looked mm-hmm. like another book, and he did them all by hand. And so I reached out to him and just you know, sent him the cover and was like, I'm releasing this book on the state. Can I get some books? And I really didn't give him much direction. I wasn't like, I want, you know, three pieces of string here. here. (laughs) I was just like, you know, give me, give me what you got. And he's, like I said, this amazing way of just like capturing, I think, the essence of the book and the person who wrote the book in, in the binding and the cutting and the everything. Um, So I just told him what size that I wanted. And he sent me different proofs, different drafts. I had my friends Akeem and Quest 
you know, helped me look over the book and Jeff mm -hmm. helped me as well. And then he just added all these beautiful personal touches like the inside black cover, the binding mm. on the side, the, the front image right there of the cover. It was just everything. He just put all the works into it. Um, and it was really special. I ordered uh, 100 copies of the first of this edition, which is... Like I kept telling people, it's a limited edition, and they ran out. Uh, we sold out at the release party, and he's making me another 30 to 50 of those. Mm -hmm. But the rest of them that are printed are going to be just like regular books. So if those of you who thankfully came out to yeah. the release party got a special edition copy. Yes, yes, and I still need mine signed. So. <laughs> All right, let's take a couple minutes. You sip on your tea or play a couple, play a song, and uh, we'll be back with Monday Katwiwa. You're listening to W2L New Orleans, 91.5 FM. The historic New Orleans collections, Andrew Jackson, hero of Mickey Barrow Soul. W2L and www. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know what my next book's going to be about. Um, and to be honest, I think one of if I was to say my personal limitation as a poet, I'm not, I'm not a joyful poet. You know what I mean? I live my joy. I mm -hmm. write through my pain. The, the reason I write is not necessarily just to have something to write or to read. It's a process for me. It's a process of processing. So when something happens, one of the, the best ways for me to personally deconstruct what's going on personally is to write about it. Because when I write about it, I can be as honest as possible. I don't have to worry about somebody judging me or nothing like that. It doesn't have to sound pretty. By the mm -hmm. time somebody else hears it, you know, on a stage or in a book, it sounds pretty but a lot of first drafts are really ugly and rough <laughs> and painful and they, you know they're tear raw stained. they're raw yeah. and yeah. that and they they're they're very tear stained and you all saw who came to the book release part even these polished versions of them are still very tear stained because there's so much you know that writing uh, when you use it as something to to write through experiences becomes a healing process right and, I, and i've gotten to the point in my life um and I think how I started writing has gotten me to a point in my life where I, I, I've learned to live my joy and love myself in that way, but to write through my pain and use that as processing. So if I get to the point in my life where I you know, want to write about all these happy things, sure, maybe I'll write Dancing While Black. <laughs> um, but Yeah, maybe it can be a collaboration, because I, I, I don't write as, that much these days. I'm certainly not the poet that you are, but uh, I've written a few oh, things. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I mean you're polished in practice, and you've really spent time um, honing the craft. You know, I can I can tell, and you perform so beautifully and uh, wonderfully. There's that Thank piece, you. in fact, that I found of you, um, where you're with a a white woman, and you're talking about um, uh, feminist experience, not feminist experiences, but it's a feminist poem mm -hmm. about and about American rape culture. Uh, yeah, there yeah. you go. That's, <laughs> that's what it is. And, and Google it, look it up. Um, it was on like Upworthy or something, and it was mm -hmm. like one of those watch these two break it down for you in like <laughs> four minutes or something like that. And it was just it was a really good piece. Um, so you kind of already touched upon it, but I wanted to ask also how you like became a poet. Um, what that what that was process was like. Oh, that was that was all my mom. I used to I was one of those people who grew up hating poetry. Mm. I was just like, ah, oh, this is so lame. I don't understand most of it, and it makes me feel stupid. Like. <laughs> So I just, I was never really into it. And then um, my parents work in academia. So when we moved up to Massachusetts, um, my mom took me to this show at UMass that had this program at the, it's called, at the, I don't I remember, it was at, out at the Fine Arts Center, I believe. And it was called uh, Project 2015. It was a bunch of um, black and brown youth of color 
um, that were just expressing themselves in all these beautiful ways that were coming out of a, a black liberation art experience. You know, so there was there was spoken word, there was hip hop, there was break dancing, there was stepping, and they were all using to tell this this counter narrative of like of, of blackness and brownness and the experience, but also the joy of it. And I was just like, this is I I can relate to like what is this poetry? <laughs> and it was the first time that the poetry was expanded for me, right? And if you you know, there's a, a acknowledgments in the book and one of them is to my mom and it says for thank you for introducing me to poetry as something more than the writing of dead white guys and depressed white women because that that's those those are the poets that you learn about in school. You know, I had read all the I was, you know, walking through the woods in a snowy evening. I was like, I don't care where this horse goes. Like, I really don't. Like, why is this one of the most known poems in the world, you know? Mm. And so I'd just been really frustrated by poetry to to that point because it had been told to me as something that was so beautiful and that moved people and they could really relate to it. I was just like, what the hell is all this? Like, <laughs> you know? And then I, I, and here I was, the people who first inspired me to write poems weren't famous poets. They were people who I was actually going to school with, you know what I mean? I was mm -hmm. like, oh my God, this is, this is what I want to do. And so I ended up starting doing that program, uh, start of high school. And yeah, I did it pretty much throughout high school and that's where I started writing. And now you're on Team Snow, right? Team Snow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and now I'm on Team Snow and Team Snow is the, the local slam team here in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. um, and this is my second year on the team. Last year we got third in uh, the nation at the National Poetry Slam. The two years before that we got first, so. Excited right. to be on this team. <laughs> Very good. And Team Snow stands for Team Slam New Orleans. Yep. Right. Okay. Slam New Orleans. Um, so yeah. So check them out. Support them. Um, they they. You, what kind of uh, spoken word shows happen around town? Like so we do. Team Snow does a show on the first of every month. So we actually had a show yesterday, um, and we usually do them at the Old Marquis Theater, which is formerly known as the Shadowbox Theater. Oh. Okay. At twenty four hundred Saint Claude. And our shows are usually at 7 o'clock p.m. Um, on the first of the month. And then we're also doing uh, another show, trying to have a second show each month. So this month, since it's March's Women's History Month, we're going to have a, a women's showcase on March 18th at mm. the Community Book Center at 6.30 p.m. And that one is a showcase of just different women-identified poets throughout the city. And then I will be featuring that night because the day after I'm going to be going to the Women of the World Poetry Slam to represent okay. Team Snow, so it'll be my send-off show. <laughs> where where is that? At the Community Book Center. No, no, no. The uh, women. Oh, well, women of. <laughs> oh, that <laughs> is. But do tell us about the show. The Women of the World Poetry Slam um, is in Albuquerque, New Mexico, this year. It changes every year. Um, and it takes 72 of the spoken word artists, female identified artists from across the nation, um, and then we just we compete tournament style to you know, be named top woman poet. <laughs> right on, right on. That sounds great. Um, of course, we wish you, wish you much success. Thank um, you, thank you. When you go, uh, I'm sure you'll do great. Uh, so I never do linear interviews, so I'm going to jump back for, for okay. a little bit. Because there was something that you were talking about, which I know about, but I just want to um, not... I just want to unpack it a little bit. So the idea of, like, other otherness and feeling like an other and made to be an other, can you just unpack, like what that means and what that feels like and other than what okay um, <laughs> just to, just I you know a teachable moment why not right well I think this is when specifically for me having an experience where I don't feel like the other is so important right mm -hmm. so when I say 
other here in the United States. I mean that there is some conception that we're all told is the norm and that if we don't fit into that norm, we're all made to feel outside of that in very specific and particular instances that people who fit within the norm don't have to experience, you know? Mm -hmm. And so for me coming into blackness, blackness was my norm. And so that's why my dad specifically had to tell me about it, right? Because Mm -hmm. it was something that I had to come into and that I was experienced and probably not understand because it wasn't something that I was born into. I think the, when you, from what I've heard from, you know, different uh, folks that I know who've grown up black in America who didn't come here, it's something that they didn't, you know, they may have had such specific conversations. A lot of people mm-hmm. uh, have told me they've had uh, similar talks with their parents. Um, but it was also something that they didn't necessarily, if they had never been told, they would have gone through it. And I think the same with me. It is something he, my dad had never told me, still would have gone through it. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um... But yeah, I mean, I just, and then the otherness is something that it's it's undeniable, you know. And we And I'm saying this in a country that very soon is predicted that white people, you know, for for into lumping people of color as one group, right. white people, the way that they self-define, even though that changes over the years to mm-hmm. serve their own self-interest, mm-hmm. will become a minority at that point. But numbers don't seem to matter here type of thing, you know, where even if I see myself in different places and I see myself representation getting more and more, there's still an element of other, there's still a fight that we're doing to get that representation up there. And it's the fight that that I'm really more interested in is why we why we're still having to have that fight and how so many people are still fighting that fight and so many people are blind to the fact that that fight is still happening. Mm. You know, the people who are like, "Wow, I never I never really thought about that. I never thought that people were still going through that. I thought we lived in this, you know, and people talk about that post-racial society. I'm just like, Right. And, Lord. and, and it's it, usually the people who created the concept of race who want to talk about how it's over and it's like, "Ah, oh. Well, there you go, segueing again, because I, I do did want to talk about um, if you think that it's possible or what you think the process would be, like the journey might be um, in the idea. So race is a construct mm-hmm. that obviously was constructed. It was built. It was fortified. It was perpetuated, reinforced, all these things, mm-hmm. expanded, um, contracted. Well, yeah, contracted in a way, too. Uh, so... Can it be deconstructed? What what would that take? Is there is there the uh, is there even the possibility of post racialism, and not just like in America, but throughout the world? Like, because certainly we have white supremacy, which looks a certain way here, but it is a worldwide phenomenon. And I also I, now I'm asking too long of a question because <laughs> <laughs> then I was going to go into what um, blackness, how how it feels different in Kenya. Mm-hmm. Or you know how that felt different, like in a way where because there it's not like there isn't I guess blackness, but mm-hmm. it's just you know mm-hmm. it's lived and experienced I guess in a different way because mm-hmm. I've been to Africa, but not in the mm-hmm. I'm not from there in the same way, and I'm not I didn't spend as much time there. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. I'll, I'll I'm gonna, I'm gonna answer I'm gonna answer your second question first because I, I remember might. it more, <laughs> and then ask you to re- re-ask the first one. Um, okay. But the second one, and this is a, saying this from experience of someone who. Um, doesn't spend the majority of my time in Kenya, right? Um, but when I go when I go back there, it's not like blackness disappears. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the the way that the book specifically was written is is with the understanding that I was experiencing some things as a child and some things now with the understanding of someone who's 23 years old and has lived through different experiences. So when I go back to Kenya, 
it's not like I'm not black anymore. You know, blackness is something that I think has spread throughout the world because white supremacy is something that's spread throughout the world. And blackness originally is something that's constructed under white supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. And I think this is where the beauty of blackness comes in is because blackness was reclaimed, right? Blackness, blackness historically is something that was bad. It was something that was evil. It was something that was whatever it needed to be to serve the interests of the people who were oppressing it, right? But within all of that, it was never destroyed. It was it was it was turned around and reclaimed and used as something to to connect people, to band people, and to survive people together. And so when we talk about blackness in this present day context, a lot of people it's it's a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's there's a whole everybody wants to be black, but nobody wants to be black, right? <laughs> but everybody wants to be black for a reason because there's even if we're talking on a very basic level about the cool black, you mm -hmm. know what I mean? There's something about blackness that is inherently I think people people see it as something that that's beautiful, something that that that's to be to be esteemed and we we've lost how to i think go about it how to respect it how to love it but there's something about it that even in the othering even in the all the destruction that's been thrown at it still survived in the beauty that it originally was right mm -hmm. and even if it was constructed as something under white supremacy blackness itself for black people have reclaimed it as something to as, as a beautiful thing they're mm -hmm. very you know unless you call meet someone who has some elements of like internalized racism there's a lot of pride that comes out of blackness that's why black people you know have been able to get to the point where they are today and survive to the point that they are today because they they've accepted that blackness and demanded more out of that blackness because they know that there's more in that blackness mm -hmm. you know excuse me um <laughs> so going back to to my the other question that I was asking it's about kind of the, the notion of so race being a construct was had to be constructed um, and fortified uh, and distributed in the way that, that it, it's been to all the bodies on the planet mm -hmm. um, and internalized so is there is there a way is there a process is there the possibility that that notion that that construct can actually be deconstructed um, and we live differently without race playing the role that it's playing today? I would hope so. I mean, that that's my hope. And I think that it's already happening in microcosm, right? And in smaller communities, you can already see it happening. People who choose or who have the luxury in a lot of ways by virtue of their experiences, by virtue of the people that they surround themselves with to live a different kind of blackness that's not an antithesis to whiteness. It's blackness is its own separate and mm. whole thing, mm -hmm. you know? And I think even if we do deconstruct blackness as we know it, I would I don't know if I would like to see the disappearance of blackness as we know it. You right. know what I mean? I would love to see it deconstructed and removed from whiteness and always, you know, demonized and pathologized and something that's seen in a negative light, but in its whole and in the yeah. way that it's been held and created, I think it's a beautiful thing and I would you know I'm not I'm not sure what the future of it here is here, especially in this country, because I think that this country has also a very unique relationship to race. Mm -hmm. um, and even though that, you know, global supremacy is a it's white supremacy is a, it's a global thing. I still think that the United States has a very unique relationship and also a very fresh relationship to, to race and racial construction. So I don't I don't know if it's something that in this country will be able to see in our lifetime, the disappearance of something called race. But I do know that there were people who, in the lifetime before us, said very similar things about segregation or different things. So I'm not, I'm not sitting here to make any type of claims. But right, you know, I think that's where something like Afrofuturism is a does a beautiful thing of envisioning blackness into the future and what that would look like, um, removed from this context of of the current sufferings and the identity of blackness now. But what is, what does blackness mean when it survives into the future and creates itself? 
know. There you go, segueing again, because <laughs> next I do want to talk about some of the work that you are doing currently with groups like Wild Seeds mm -hmm. and uh, Black Youth Project. And um... All right, guys, um, I'm going to segue us into the TED Talk so that we can still have a little bit of an open discussion. And um, the rest of that interview kind of pertains more to New Orleans and some things that Monday was working on a couple of years ago. So um, just to reiterate, I put a bunch of information for them in the chat box, uh, their website, their book, their Instagram tag. Um, they have a countless YouTube videos, but we're gonna take the next uh, like 10 minutes to watch their TED Talk um, that pertains to the title of this session. And then we will take some questions, et cetera. My name is Mwendeka Twiwa, and I am a poet, a Pan-Africanist, and a freedom fighter. I was 23 years old when I first heard about reproductive justice. I was working at Women with a Vision, where I learned that reproductive justice was defined by Sister Song as one, a woman's right to decide if and when she will have a baby and the conditions under which she will give birth, two, a woman's right to decide if she will not have a baby and her options for preventing or ending a pregnancy. And three, a woman's right to parent the children that she already has in safe and healthy environments without fear of violence from individuals or the government. I've always wanted to be a mother. Growing up, I heard all about the joys of motherhood. I used to dream of watching my womb weave wonder into this world. See, I knew I was young, but I figured it couldn't hurt to start planning for something so big, so early. But now, I'm 26 years old, and I don't know if I have what it takes to stomach motherhood in this country. See, over the years, America has taught me more about parenting than any book on the subject. It has taught me how some women give birth to babies and others to suspects. It has taught me that this body will birth kin who are more likely to be held in prison cells than to hold college degrees. There is something about being black in America that has made motherhood seem complicated. Seem like I don't know what to do to raise my kids right and keep them alive. Do I tell my son not to steal because it is wrong or because they will use it to justify his death? Do I tell him that even if he pays for his Skittles and sweet tea, there will still be those who will watch him and see a criminal before child, who will call the police and not wait for them to come? Do I even want the police to come? Too many Sean Bells go off in my head when I consider calling 911. I will not take it for Oscar granted that they will not come and kill my son. So he may have gotten rid of the nooses, but I still consider it lynching when they murder black boys and leave their bodies for four hours in the sun as a historical reminder that there is something about being black in America that has made motherhood sound like mourning. Sound like one morning I could wake up and see my son as a repeat of last week's story. Sound like I could wake up and realize the death of my daughter wouldn't even be newsworthy. So you can't tell me that Sandra Bland is the only black woman whose violence deserved more than our silence. What about our other dark-skinned daughters in distress whose deaths we have yet to remember? What about our children whose lives don't fit neatly between the lives of your genders? See, apparently, nothing is a great protector if you come out of a body that looks like this. 
See, there is something about being black in America that has made motherhood sound like something I'm not sure I look forward to. I've written too many poems about dead black children to be naive about the fact that there could one day be a poem written about my kids. But I do not want to be a mother who gave birth to poems. I do not want a stanza for a son, nor a line for a little girl, nor a footnote for a child who doesn't fit into this world. No, I do not want children who will live forever in the pages of poetry, yet can't seem to outlive me. I was invited to the TED Women's Conference to perform a poem. But for me, poetry is not about art and performance. It is a form of protest. Yesterday, during rehearsal, I was told that there had been two to three recent TED Talks about Black Lives Matter, that maybe I should cut down my TED Talk so that I could just be about reproductive justice. But that poem, and this talk is fundamentally about my inability to separate the two. I was 21 years old. I was 21 years old when Trayvon Martin was murdered. Trayvon Martin, a 17-year-old black boy, a black child, reminded me, reminded us, how little this nation actually values black life. The hashtag Black Lives Matter became the most recognized call for black people and our children to live in safe environments and healthy communities without fear from violence from individuals or the state or government. Months later, when George Zimmerman was not held responsible for murdering Trayvon Martin, I heard Sabrina Fulton, Trayvon Martin's mother, speak. Her testimony so deeply impacted me that I found myself constantly asking, what would it mean to mother in the United States of America in this skin? What does motherhood really mean when for so many who look like me, it is synonymous with mourning? Without realizing it, I had begun to link the reproductive justice framework and the movement for black lives. As I learned more about reproductive justice at Women with a Vision, and as I continued to be active in the movement for black lives, I found myself wanting others to see and feel these similarities. I found myself asking, whose job is it, in times like this, to connect ideas, realities and people? I want to dedicate this talk and that poem to Constance Malcolm. She is the mother of Ramarley Graham, who was another black child who was murdered before their time. She reminded me once over dinner, as I was struggling to write that poem, that it is the artist's job to unearth stories that people try to bury with shovels of complacency and time. Recently, Toni Morrison wrote, in times of dread, artists must never choose to remain silent. There is no time for self-pity, no room for fear. Yesterday, during rehearsal, when I was told that I should maybe cut the Black Lives Matter portion from my talk, I found myself fearful for a moment. Fearful that, again, our stories were being denied the very stages they deserve to be told on. 
And then I remembered the words I had just spoken. In times of dread, artists must never choose to remain silent. There is no time for self-pity. There is no time for self-pity, and no room for fear. And I have made my choice, and I am always choosing. Thank you. Um, I will just comment that um, what she said at the end about being an artist and not having any room to have self-pity. Um, I feel like as activists and leaders and people who are showing up, like um, it's a really intense reminder of what holding space for the truth and what holding space for such a harsh reality can feel like. And you know, I, Mo had mentioned while we were watching it that oh, she's crying. You know, like even in the moment of holding that space, even the moment of bringing that truth, she couldn't help herself but let some of that pain seep out of her from her own harsh experience of being a black woman. And I just wanted to bring awareness to that. It's just something to, I feel like, take note of. It's not a light task to bring awareness to this topic. And, you know, I guess just kudos for everybody who's holding this space from yourself and for each other right now in this. Ooh. So um, it's, it's so interesting. Like, I feel like I meet a lot of Wendy's um, intersections um, my father is a, a Nigerian and so I'm a first generation. So I also, I often call my, I often identify myself as experiencing the double consciousness. And even though W.E.B. Du Bois was um, looking at double consciousness as wearing the mask as a black person in white society, sometimes I often use that phrase as what does it mean to be first generation and also experience white supremacy when I know I come from a black, a black continent, you know? Um, and also having to explain to my family why life is so different for me than it was for them when you come from a black country. And also, um, even if they uh, are subscribing to white supremacist culture as black people, you still see a reflection of yourself in your country. Um, so your oppression is a tad bit different than the oppression that we experience here in America. And I also identify with Monday when they spoke of, um, uh, being called nigger like when you when she talks about the womb of blackness being so fresh we're not just talking about 401 plus years we're talking about how that same behavior that same mindset the same constructs are still very present i also was called a nigger when i was in middle school i had just moved from new york so i went from this colorful new york world just just everybody just a whole like party we were on like um and living color, you know, it's Jim Carrey, it was um, Jennifer Lopez, it was the Wayne's brothers, and then we went to Delaware. My mom moved me to Delaware, and it went black and white. The minute that my middle school drama teacher called me a nigger, and so the womb that I have to carry and heal, and the weight, and how I have to remind myself that every white person I look at is not the same. That trauma, y'all, black trauma, why therapy is so important. Why, why calling out 
bringing to the surface your trauma is so important. And also sharing that with people so we don't repeat history. You know, I was in, I was in, I think I was in seventh or eighth grade. So while she's trying to recollect, I'm trying to recollect. I'm like, I remember it was middle school, but dang, like it's so present. Uh, I, I hope my generation, you know, as much as we are imagining Afrofuturism, I don't want my generation, and I'm in Generation Y, to think that we've come so far and so so past. Like, no, like this thing is also coming down the parking order of generations. So as you prepare your children and send them off, they're preparing their children and send them off. And so now we're carrying these same burdens. And, and white folks carry those burdens and send them off into their seats. So how do we undo? How do we look up the book, this will be my undoing? How do we undo? How do we constantly work on ourselves? How do we constantly share and love without feeling like you being black tax, you know, like, hey, can you black person come speak and teach us something? How do you also, um, yeah, I just, I still am working on that. And um, I'm gonna be 31. And I, <laughs> I just can't, I just can't, when, when one day talks about having children, like I think about, man, like I, I have a, a brother who's 17 years younger than me and people thought he was my kid anyway, so that's my kid. But I just think like, oh, I have to, I'm just like, Isaiah, you cannot be behaving like that. Then I'm like, no, I shouldn't tell him that because he should be a, a little black boy who can go out and play. Like Isaiah, don't, don't do that. Listen, no, no, don't listen, fight back. You know, how do I tell my brother not to get in trouble, but get in trouble? You know, I think about those things too. And um, I think, you know, I just, I just wanted to share that. Hi. We hear you. Um, cool. Um, so yeah, I felt really um, like, do you thank you for speaking? Because I, yeah, um, I just feel everything you said so hard, but um, yeah, I definitely have been feeling at a loss lately of what to do, um, how to use artistic powers to uh, to help move things forward. Um, it feels like, you know, what's really needed right now is that actionable change when you're, um, when you're directly kind of trying to figure out how to, how to, dismantle this system, you know, whether it's petition signing or making sure you're, you're voting or calling your, um, calling your city and state officials and all that stuff. Um, I feel like prioritizing that right now because I feel like that's what's going to be the quickest way to getting real change within our lifetimes, like you were saying, because, and then there's so much other, um, other work to be done that's definitely not going to be done um, before we're gone. But that's where I feel like I can step in as an artist and to know that um, that it's not a selfish thing that I do for myself because I love it, but that it actually does serve a purpose um, in a lot of great aspects. And that as somebody with, with creative prowess, um, having a duty to the world to, um, 
yeah, she said, uncover those forgotten stories and, uh, and yeah, don't be afraid. That was definitely something I needed to hear right now. So, uh, so yeah, I just wanted to share that. Um, thank you so much for having me here, Mo and Andrea. Thank you. Erica said, as a Black woman married to a Nigerian, I provide a wide perspective exposure and teach my Nigerian Black children the truth. Direct, no chaser. Mm. First, I just want to like shout out my Niger family. Niger. <laughs> I, I want to piggyback on that and just say that um, Black and Brown and POC parents have the race conversation with their children so much earlier if at all, in comparison to white parents or non-POC parents or even white passing POC parents. Um, we're at a point in our world and our politics that we don't get this option anymore. If you aren't gonna take the time to speak to your children about race, the way race affects them, the way race is played out in our systemic world, our capitalistic world, um, then you're not preparing them for the conversations they need to have or the actions they need to have that support black and brown people in their lives. Yes, thank you. I just wanted to comment uh, also on the importance of art. Um, I have discovered um, that art is, is a key to um, peace, and happiness um, in my own life. Um, and it's very, very overlooked, right? Like, they don't fund art, they defund art. Um, and that in itself is, um, you know, first to remember, art is so important. So you have to go for it yourself. You can't wait for other people to say, be an artist, because they're not gonna say that. That's not what our society is built on. Our society is built on capitalism, you know? Um, and so when we're growing up, we're not, and so art is your voice. When we're growing up, we're not shown to pursue art. We are often showing talents of art as young children, but is that what we're shown to um, emulate? No, we're not shown to emulate our own voice, our own natural talents. And so therein lies, you know, some very difficult problems that arise for us in our lives, right? Um, challenges, because it's like, how do you go for what you want? How do you go for what your heart is saying, but it doesn't match what the world around you is saying? I get really passionate when I talk about art because, um, you know, it's really saved my life. And, and I, I think that, uh, you know, I want everybody to be artists and to find that. So, you know, with, with her saying that, right, and then, you know, me being here, and, um, it's all the synchronicity, right, is like all going off. Um, we are in a, an incredible paradigm shift right now, right? It's amazing things going on. Um, and the, the groundwork, the foundation has been laid for, you know, 
laid for us by, you know, the movements that came before. You know, the movements that came before, and they didn't necessarily know exactly how to do it, but they did it, and they they learned, they laid the foundation for us, and and we're gonna learn from their mistakes, right? Looking to um, networking and getting together and talking around art, I feel like is is really crucial not to forget that. Thank you all, much love. Thanks, y'all, for listening to The Black Aesthetic. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and tune in every Wednesday. Follow us on all socials at Black Humboldt and check out our website at www.blackhumboldt.com. If you want to send some love and feedback, email us at blackhumboldt at gmail.com. And make sure to use the hashtag Black Humboldt Aesthetic. B-L-A-C-K-H-U-M-B-O-L-D-T-A-E-S-T-H-E-T-I-C on social media. Until next time, continue to walk in your Black excellence.